Welcome to Unlearn to Learn, a podcast brought to you by the World Obesity Federation. I'm your host, Alexander. I'm the Education Manager at World Obesity, and in my role as Manager of Scope eLearning, I oversee the development of resources to improve the care and treatment of patients with obesity. In this series, I'll be speaking with some of the most experienced medical practitioners from all over the world. Across nine episodes, we'll be examining the prevention, treatment and care of obesity by busting myths and focusing on the science behind obesity treatment and management. Whether you're a medical student, a practitioner, or simply have an interest in obesity and public health, there's something to be learned here. So join us. Let's get started. Today, I'm joined by Mary O'Kane. Mary is an honorary consultant dietitian at Leeds Teaching Hospital's NHS Trust in the UK, where she has worked to support patients with obesity for almost 40 years. Within her extensive career, She's enjoyed being a member of multidisciplinary teams of medical professionals, specialising in the treatment and prevention of obesity. Through these teams, Mary has added her invaluable knowledge, experience and personal insight in order to arm patients with the correct nutritional guidance and advice to treat obesity. She has sat on a number of national committees, including the British Nutrition Foundation Obesity Task Force, NICE Obesity and NHS England's Obesity Clinical Reference Group, among others. Outside of this, Mary has several publications, including her MSc in Advanced Nutrition, which resulted in the publication of Nutritional Guidelines for BOMS, and is active in the education and training of healthcare professionals. Mary, it's a pleasure to have you with us on today's podcast. Welcome. Thank you. And it's uh, really good to be here today and looking forward to this discussion. Fantastic. We're so grateful to you for joining us today. So let's start with the basics then. What, in your view, would constitute a healthy diet? Well, a healthy diet is a varied diet, but obviously it's got to have some major components. So protein, which is meat, fish, eggs, cheese, beans, lentils, nuts and seeds. And they are sort of our building blocks, but also meat and fish are available source of iron. And for those who are vegetarian, beans and pulses are too. For people who eat fish, we would encourage at least two portions of fish a week. But also for everybody, trying to eat more plant-based foods, such as the beans and pulses, and maybe reduce their meat consumption. Then we move on to the starchy carbohydrates, bread, potatoes, rice, pasta, cereals, and advising people to go for more the whole grain uh, types because they are a good source of fibre. In addition, dairy products are important. um, So that's milk, cheese, eggs, and uh, they're a good source of protein and calcium. And it's really important if someone is using an alternative milk that they actually make sure they've actually got that good composition of calcium. So fruit and vegetables are really important to include in the diet and they can be fresh, dried and canned and trying to include as much variety as possible. In the UK we recommend at least five portions of fruit and vegetables a day but in other countries it may be higher. Then in addition having a small amount of fat in the diet is important. Trying to go for the unsaturated sources as opposed to those which are rich in saturated fats. And that's one of the reasons if people eat fish, it's good to include those because they're a good source of some of the essential fatty acids. We're not saying that people shouldn't eat snacks which are rich in sugar or fat, but not including them too often in the diet because also they can be a source of energy that we don't need and also can be high in salt. But most importantly, we want people to eat a varied diet, one that they can afford and also one that they will enjoy. Okay, and this may seem like a really obvious question, but I think it's worth asking. Could you tell us what is the importance of nutrition? What is the importance of having a varied, healthy diet? 
it's going to keep us well. It keeps us nourished. It helps us grow from childhood. It helps as we get older with helping protect our bones and our muscle, which are important to keep us healthy in older life. It's also can protect us against certain diseases. So a healthy diet helps reduce the risk of heart disease, reduce the risk of stroke, reduces the risk of certain cancers. A high fibre diet helps prevent constipation, obviously. But also remembering that the food itself is an important source of nutrients such as iron. So having foods which are rich in iron will help decrease the risk of iron deficiency anemia. And also some of the fruits and vegetables will contain folic acid and that is really important preconception and during the early stages of pregnancy because it can help reduce the incidence of conditions such as spina bifida. So lots of reasons to eat a nutritious diet. Okay, and when it comes to disease prevention then, how important is nutrition when it comes to obesity prevention? And similarly, how important is nutrition when it comes to obesity treatment? That's a quite a difficult question because obesity is a very complex disease. There's many factors, genetic, biological, our psychosocial status. People may have certain conditions and need medications which will make it harder to lose weight. It's quite a difficult question to answer because it's not all about nutrition. We also know that in areas where there's greater social deprivation, there's a higher incidence of obesity and there's a greater risk of food insecurity. So people might be using food banks and actually not have much choice in what they eat. And then obviously with what's going on in the world at the moment, people are finding it difficult to heat. They're you know, using electricity, using gas, and that's going to affect people's diet. So Nutrition isn't the only way to prevent obesity. There's many other causes of obesity and it's actually just part of a larger picture. Absolutely. I mean, obesity is clearly a very multifaceted issue. And yet I think for many, many people, there's still this really prevalent idea that it's a case of calories in, calories out to prevent obesity. How damaging is that kind of thinking? I think it's very damaging because people tend to think it's their fault. They will say to me that I can manage to stop smoking and they may have a high-powered job, they're very good at other things, they're good parents, achieve lots of other things in life successfully, but yet they may class themselves as a failure because they have managed to lose weight several times, but because of physiological drive, they've always regained. Now, it's different to smoking because people will smoke or they don't smoke. Everybody's got to eat and we eat for different reasons. We eat for hunger, we eat because we enjoy food, we eat because we're happy, we eat because we're sad. And just because we know what a healthy diet is doesn't mean we'll necessarily choose it. I'm a dietitian. I don't eat healthily 100% of the time. I've had some cake today at lunchtime and also pork pie, but not that frequently. So probably not a great example. So, but you know, we eat for different reasons. We don't just eat because it's good for us. We eat because we enjoy certain things. And unfortunately, or fortunately, foods which are high in fat and sugar can be more tempting. So how can those of us who work in the obesity and nutrition space deal with this misinformation, this narrative around calories in, calories out? How do we convince people that it's not as simple as that? I think it's that we challenge it when we hear those statements made. And I was just reflecting this morning, there's lots of good news stories in the papers and in social media about obesity research and the findings that we're making about genetics, about some of the gut hormones and how they work, some of the medications that are coming out. But often these good news stories are actually presented with a picture 
of a headless person who sat on the sofa with a bag of crisps and a pork pie, like I was doing this morning, in their hands. So just use if there's any pictures in the media, it's that sort of presentation, or it might be children, again, also playing on the internet, not doing anything active. So I think we should challenge it. And I know certainly patient groups and people like myself and the um, World Obesity Federation has many positive image banks and so encouraging the media to use that but also making sure that people like myself in our presentations to patients to the public actually use those positive images of people eating healthily of being active as well but I think we really do have to challenge it and and challenge it all the time just constantly but it's not just about the media it's actually challenging the views of family friends and work colleagues as well because there is a lot of prejudice against people with obesity people tend to think it is as you've said before calories in and calories out and it's a simple question of eat less and move more and it's not and we just need to keep on challenging that Completely agree. And on your point around imagery around obesity, that's something that has really bothered me for a long time. Every single news story I see around obesity has a picture of somebody with obesity where their head has been cut off. You just see their body. It's so stigmatizing. It's so horrible. And it's so unnecessary given, as you say, there are these free image banks like World Obesity's Image Bank, like Obesity Canada's Image Bank, where people can get these amazing non-stigmatizing pictures of people with obesity in ordinary situations to use at their leisure. We'd really like to see greater use of those images in the media. Yeah, I definitely try to promote them as much as possible. I can tell you what my understanding is as a dietitian working in obesity. So when I'm seeing somebody with obesity, I want to know about the whole person. And I won't just be focusing on nutrition. And sometimes when I have dietetic students like sitting in in clinics, they may comment that we've not talked about food at all. And it's just because we've already mentioned that obesity is complex. The patients that I will see will often have lost weight several times but have regained. And that's a normal story. And that's because there is this physiological pull to make people put the weight back on again. So when I see somebody in clinic, I want to know more about them. I want to know what their social circumstances are. And it's not because I want to judge, but if somebody's working or not working, that may make a difference on the amount of finance they've got. Somebody might be a single parent with young children looking after an elderly mother and have demands on the time. Somebody else may be working, but be a shift worker and have difficulties managing a healthy diet and lifestyle around their shifts and difficulty in planning ahead. Most of the people I will see will have many medical conditions such as diabetes, sleep apnea, osteoarthritis, which are actually going to affect their quality of life. So I want to know how it impacts on the day. One of the ways in which we will discuss that is actually ask the patient to take me through a typical day. So I want to know what happens from the morning to the end of the day and actually where food fits in. And it's not because I'm making a judgment about what they're eating. I just need to know more about that person. So. They'll take me through a typical day and I may find that that single mother who's struggling with children has a very stressful time in the morning getting the children ready for school and then has a stressful time in the evening when the children get back from school and especially she's still caring for the elderly mother. Food will come into part of that, but I'll have an idea about what the constraints are on finances, on planning meals, on preparation time. So then the person and I can start to discuss their diet and lifestyle and actually look to see where changes can be made. 
And the people I see are motivated. They're just struggling. And we might discuss about what the people have found easier and what would help them to move forward. So this is where the whole person approach comes in. I'd also be looking for conditions such as eating disorders where somebody may have binge eating disorder or we sometimes see night eating syndrome as well and that person may need a specialist support of a psychologist so it's about knowing where to direct them to. So whilst nutrition is important we've got to see how it fits into the context of that lifestyle and what I want to do is work with a person to empower them to make changes but taking into account their financial situation whether they're having to use food banks and what the constraints are and what the barriers are for them. So it's really important to get a holistic idea of what that person experiences as well as what their diet is to know what the most appropriate treatment for that person will be. Definitely and I just feel very privileged to work with patients who share so much information with me. So we tend to get to know about their social situation, when their daughter's getting married, one of the children are expecting a baby so they're going to have their first grandchild, but also sometimes about the difficult relationships they have in their life and how they're dealing with that. So we just can't discuss food in isolation. All those things are really important. And how readily available is that kind of personalised treatment, both in the UK and globally? It's hard because sometimes getting access to a dietitian is difficult. Certainly in the UK, and I would imagine this is probably true of many countries, is we can have what we call in the UK a postcode lottery. So in some areas, there'll be very good services and access to treatments. So it might be a community-based weight management programme. It might be specialist weight management support with an obesity physician and a specialist dietitian or access to bariatric surgery. But in other parts of the country, there'll be on. I think also that COVID has raised people's awareness of obesity and the impact on health. So uh, certainly in Leeds, I understand that our referrals to our management services have actually escalated. So people are becoming aware and where there are services, it may be that there is such great demand, there is a waiting list, but we need to be able to do more for more people. It is more time consuming if we are seeing people individually. And there is uh, certainly research and there's certainly group work going on as well about the role of groups. Also, in the UK, and I'm sure it's in other countries, we have commercial slimming clubs as well. And I know a lot of people who actually go to those and actually get a lot of support in a group. But it's not just from the person leading the group. It's actually from other members of the group as well. So showing their experiences. Okay, so that peer-to-peer support can be really helpful in weight loss efforts. Oh, definitely. And as a dietitian, I've got some insight. And I know my background is actually from a true working class background from a low income group. Obviously, I've moved on since then. But for patients to be able to speak about their experiences and in similar backgrounds is really, really important. Absolutely. So looking from a broader societal perspective, What is your opinion of the idea that society promotes obesity through an obesogenic environment? Yeah, it's a hard one. I I think it does. If I think back to my childhood, life is very different. And, you know, as a child, nobody had a car. We were able to play skipping on the street. Things are very different now. But having said that, there is still an awful lot of social deprivation. People are struggling to access food. What they might have access to in their area is not great quality. Unfortunately, some of the healthy foods tend to cost more. 
So I have found sometimes when I'm asking patients whether or not they could possibly swap some foods around, when they actually tell me what they pay for something that's much cheaper, it's very hard to come up with a healthy alternative for that price. In addition, we know that with the social media especially, that it's not just the adverts on TV we need to worry about, it's all the adverts through social media aimed at children. So that would need to be addressed. And also working with food industry to help them or encourage them, maybe I should say, to actually reformulate some of their foods to make it healthier and easier. I just remember years and years ago, one of the confectionery companies actually marketing chocolate bar. And it was because one of their other chocolate bars did not appeal to women. They had designed a different chocolate bar to appeal to women. I don't think it was a success. But it just shows that there's so much more investment by food companies into some of the promotions than we can actually do in public health in actually counteracting that and making healthier choices available. So what can we do then, both within public health, but also our listeners, people generally? What can we do to try to fix this as a culture? I think it's difficult. I mean, one of the researchers, Dr. Dolly Theus, she looked at the government policies, I think over about 20 years, and I think there were nearly 700 government policies, and it hasn't changed the obesity rates over that time. But what I find fascinating is that when she looked at those policies, most of them are about the individual's responsibility. So it's their responsibility to eat less and to move more. There were less than half of them were more about the structure and the environment, but they were voluntary. And so that was the examples like the marketing of foods, maybe the formulation of some of the foods that are available. But that time, certainly, industry did not have to enforce them. So I think it's trying to move away from that personal responsibility and actually have a structure in place that makes it easier to make healthy choices. There was some work done in Amsterdam, and I quite like their slogan because they, they worked across different agencies. And they have a slogan about something, it's something along the lines of the healthy choice is the easy choice or the easy choice is a healthy choice, but really saying that making it easier to make people, help people to make those choices rather than actually finding it really difficult because of financial constraints and food availability as well. Because mm, I feel that's not always the perception. I feel like, for example, if somebody's extremely busy, if they work a long day, then have to look after their kids, etc., they may feel, I'll go for whatever is easiest to prepare, which may be fast food. It may be a processed ready meal, but that doesn't have to be the case, does it? No, it doesn't have to be the case, but it's hard, isn't it? Because when I was working at the local hospital and I used to drive along a road and it's definitely in a socially deprived area and I used to see all these fast food stores and the amount that they could do the equivalent of chicken wings or a burger uh, and a drink for a small amount of money and it'd be really quite difficult to actually prepare something healthy for that amount. It is possible. In these, we have the Ministry of Food Kitchens, which will teach people how to cook and actually improve their cookery skills so they can actually make some basic meals and actually build on that. But people who are living in poverty may find it more difficult. I know that people will say, well, they can go to the market, they can do this, they can do that. Somebody like me, can do online shopping and get it delivered to the house. I've went to the supermarket. I don't have to look at the price. I can buy what I want. But for many people, that isn't possible. So it is more difficult. 
So what can we do then to make healthy food more financially accessible for everybody? Well, it's got to be a whole whole approach. And I'd probably say, you know, help people get out of poverty, help them not have to make that decision about do they heat the house? Or do they use food, you know, the gas and electricity for cooking? And then people are making some dreadful choices. It's a sad day when food banks are actually having to make foods available that people can actually just add hot water to it to eat. So it's got to be a whole approach. It's not just that individual's responsibility. People are struggling. So it is difficult. So they're adding hot water because they don't have the resources to, to use a cooker. Yeah, that, that's what I'm reading about food banks. And that is just so sad as well. So looking at the environmental impact of the so-called obesogenic environment, how do we scientifically assess the impact that has? And how do we measure the impact of interventions to try to address these issues? I think the environment's a, a difficult one. Um, obviously, because I'm a dietitian, I'm working with patients. It's not my area. I do know that other countries, such as Amsterdam, Portugal, have worked across agencies to make impacts and actually help to address some of the issues of childhood obesity as well. So it is possible. There are obviously researchers in the UK who are very interested in this work as well, but I'm less confident and familiar with their work to be able to speak about it here. The, as a dietitian, though, I know there is good evidence behind helping supporting patients and people living with obesity to make behavioural changes, which then, if they're in the right sort of environment, is going to help them to move forward. And also as a dietitian, I know that patients will say that having a healthcare profession who will take them seriously, who will listen to them and engage, will make them feel so much better about themselves as well. So obviously, when I see patients, initially, I'm trying to stop them gaining weight, we're aiming for weight maintenance, and then we'll focus more on the weight loss, but looking at achievable goals, and help them improve their health, but also hopefully help them feel better about themselves and give them an understanding that it's not all their fault. There is a reason why it's more difficult to lose weight nowadays. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. So that's almost all we've got time for today. I suppose one last question, given that a lot of our listeners are going to be medical students, what advice would you impart to medical students on giving nutritional advice and to starting that conversation with the patient who's living with overweight or obesity? I think really, really listen to the patient. It will have taken a lot of courage for them to come to you to talk about their weight. They'll be experienced stigma. They'll feel ashamed. I've had patients who cry all the way throughout the interview because they feel so ashamed. So really do listen. I also say it's probably important not to give advice and actually maybe ask them what support they need, but also find you know, what's available in your local area to actually refer the patient on for further support. There was a study done in the UK which showed that if people were forwarded to a local weight management service and the healthcare practitioner actually made that referral for them, the person was more likely to go and to engage. But I think also just make very clear that the patient is happy with that. I would also suggest that we all think we know about nutrition and it is really important, but patients also know about nutrition because they've had many years of trying to lose weight. There can also be in social media and in different forums 
the suggestion that a certain type of diet may be better than another. And we've got things like intermittent fasting, time-restricted eating, low-carbohydrate diets, healthy eating, trying to control fat intake and that type of thing. However, there is no evidence that one diet is superior to another. And what we must make sure is that any advice that we're giving is regarding food and nutrition is correct and that the patient can afford it, that they can enjoy it. And we're wanting them to make lifestyle changes that they can carry on with. So re-listen to the patient, onward referral for support, and then also, as well as the fantastic information that's available on the World Obesity Federation website, we've also got the British Dietetic Association website and we have food facts, which have been uh, prepared by dietitians are accurate and a really good source of information and can be downloaded by the public as well. That's excellent advice. We'll make sure to include links to those in the episode notes for this episode. Well, I think that's a good note to end on. Mary, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing all of your knowledge and expertise. Uh, It's invaluable information and your insight is really appreciated. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for asking me. I've enjoyed it. It's been great. So thank you also to our listeners for tuning in. Uh, Once again, I've been Alexander. I'm the Education Manager at the World Obesity Federation. And this has been the Unlearn to Learn podcast. On the next episode, we'll be joined by Dr. Caroline Apovian, where we will explore all things pharmacotherapy. We'll see you next time. Until then, goodbye. Goodbye.